If you would take your scriptures, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 12 through 28. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 28. Would you give ear to the reading of God's word? And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the grace that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning to hear from your word. We need to grow in our understanding of you and this marvelous gospel you have given us through your Son. Make our hearts ready to receive your truth. Unstop our ears and remove the scales from our eyes that we might hear of your grace and see the results of your love and learn of your work on our behalf. And Lord, in everything, help us to give thanks. For we know this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. In his name. Amen. In the fourth and fifth chapters of First, Th- Th- I'll get out in a minute. First Thessalonians, Paul is teaching about the return of Christ. In chapter four, he explains that Christ's return will be with impartiality. In other words, there will be no distinction between Christians. Those who are still alive will be treated in the same way as those who have died and gone before. One having no advantage over the other. He also, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-11, shows that Christ's return will be with suddenness. It will come and will take people by surprise, yes, even believers. Yet the true believer will be prepared, for they are to be continually preparing for this day. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 28, the apostle teaches how believers should be conducting themselves until Christ return. Paul begins with some clear admonitions about the treatment of the elders appointed over them. Then he gives directions in the treatment of the disorderly, the faint-hearted, the weak, and in general, everyone. He goes on to instruct the handling of those who injure others. Then he gives perhaps one of the most important instructions ever. How the believer should act toward God. 
He speaks of the believer's attitude toward everyone they have to deal with in this life. Now our text this morning is 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 22. He shows in verse 16 what their attitude toward God must be. He tells how this attitude must express itself with reference to God. In verse 17, he speaks of prayer. In verse 18, he covers thanksgiving and submission. Paul gives this in three beautiful, closely related, and very tersely uh, expressed admonitions. In verses 19 through 22, he exhorts the believer to take a stand, hold fast, and never give up. Let's look at these instructive concepts and see if we understand God and the thanksgiving that matches up to God's word as given to us by Paul. In all of this, we can learn more how to understand our God. In our world, there's a very destructive idea going around that tells people they deserve to be happy in everything they do. I had someone tell me one time that they were divorcing their mate because they deserved to be happy. When I asked them for scriptural reference for that, they didn't have one. Paul says, be joyful always. Well, isn't that the same thing as being happy always and in everything? No, it is not. To be happy is to be grateful, to be satisfied with the circumstances in which you're living. To be joyful is different. To be joyful is to have a sense of peace apart from any outward circumstances. Listen to Paul as he speaks of these new believers in 1 Thessalonians 1.6. And you became followers of us and of the word, having received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. Here is the real religious experience. They had become reflectors and not mere talkers. Paul says they had become imitators of him and then of the Lord. Paul was a follower of Christ Jesus, one who had become, who had come to reveal the Father in heaven. So Paul saw himself as a copier of God. And he says, you and I should be, should mirror him as he imitates God. If you're following of Paul, you learn to reflect the Lord Jesus Christ. Through your following of Christ, you learn to imitate the Father in heaven. To witness to others is to ask them to imitate you and then Christ so they can become imitators of God. I trust you see the imitators become examples. That's what this is all about, being an example. This is a circle we see as the triune God performs his work here on earth. First, the Father elects, or if you will, he commits. Election and commitment are basically the same thing. He makes a commitment, a commitment to you. Then the Son gives an example of that commitment through rejoicing amid his sufferings. After that, the Holy Spirit imparts the essence of that commitment through giving joy. You also see this in the conversion of believers. The believer receives God's call in his heart. He then welcomes the word and in turn becomes an imitator of the one who is committed to him eternal life. He goes out with the good news through the Holy Spirit, telling others and glorifying God. Thus, the circle is complete. 
Once you have been through the circle, not only is the circle complete, but now your joy is also complete. What is your joy grounded in? It's in the circumstance. Is it in the circumstances of life? No, never. Your joy will always be found in your relationship with Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what circumstances you're living in now. You have a promise. A promise that has been given to you by God himself. You have a commitment backed by a guarantee from God that you will have an eternal home with him. You may be born the poorest peasant on earth with barely enough food to eat, but by God's grace, you were born in a remote village that had a missionary. You were here the word of God and are given a new heart and come to believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Your joy is as marvelous and fulfilling as the richest convert on this planet. Your joy, for your joy is grounded in God's promise, not in your earthly situation. Boy, do we need to hear that over and over and over again. Look at those who live without Christ. Some are millionaires, others are poor as the proverbial church mouse. They are both miserable. They're miserable because they don't know and understand true joy. They have no concept of it. Whichever you choose to look at, you can say, there but by the grace of God go I. Believers are living out this wonderful relationship with the Creator because God chose them and poured out His grace upon the undeserving. This is the only source of true and everlasting joy. This is joy coming directly from Christ and from the redemption wrought upon the cross of Calvary. Yes, you must always, always be aware of the dangers to this joy from persecutors without and disturbances within. There is always a danger, humanly speaking, that the joy could fade and disappear from your life. Paul, who himself again and again rejoiced in the midst of persecution and hardship, urges all believers to always be joyful. How do you as a believer in Jesus Christ, in seasons of distress and grief, find relief and live in joy? The burden of the circumstances of this life can indeed be great. Paul tells you how to continue this joy in Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. As a true believer, you are called not according to your own purposes, but according to God's purposes. Therefore, the circumstances of your life have been established by God. They were there to fulfill his purpose in your life. Hey, I believe in a sovereign God, an infinitely wise God, one that never makes a mistake. I hope that you believe that also. It is, if it is, then you know everything in your life is caused by his hand. You know it is directed to, direct to you, brings you to his ends. And this is the assurance that keeps you rejoicing always. It's not my ends that's going to matter. It's God's end. 
God said he for loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's what I want. God's end, eternal life. Listen to Paul, who also believes this. Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's saying there is absolutely nothing that can quench the joy of an everlasting relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the first part of your attitude toward God. Rejoice always. For the joy of the true believer is an eternal joy grounded in the eternal work of Jesus Christ. The second admonition he gives here is pray without ceasing. If you have eternal joy within your heart that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you have assurance of a heavenly home with God the Father, then the next logical thing for you to do is to continually talk with the source of such riches. The Greek word here for prayer is the most comprehensive word for prayer in the New Testament. What Paul means is there must be no stoppage in the regular habit of talking to God in the midst of all life circumstances. I don't know about y'all, but I find that to be an awful hard thing to do at times. Circumstances can overwhelm us, and what is Satan's trying to do with those circumstances is pull you away from God. Don't let him. What is it that you do when things begin to build up around you? The natural response is worry. Paul tells you in Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. He tells you the answer to worry is prayer. If you want to build a house, can you get that house built by simply getting down on your knees and praying? No. God tells you to pray continually about everything, but he never tells you to do nothing but pray. The accomplishment of building a house requires action. But you should never start that action without prayer. Paul tells you in Romans 12, 12, how important praying continually is. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. The idea here is the hope of future salvation will and does present to you great joy. It does this to such an extent that the believer is enabled to patiently endure even the worst of afflictions. You learn through this endurance that you do have the strength to bear up under the stress. You see that there is a persistence in the application of this strength in your life. It becomes abundantly clear. This joy, patience, and strength are not a product of your own, but they are the work of God's grace. Thus, Paul says, 
Be faithful in prayer. Without constant prayer, such joy, patience, and strength would be impossible. Believers are constantly attacked by the world and by doubts from within. Standing alone, no man can defend against such an onslaught. Without steadfastness in prayer, obedience to God's word cannot be expected. We need God's help in all that we do. In Ephesians 6, 18, Paul addresses the way in which you must accomplish this praying continually. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Let me assure you, Paul's not talking about praying in some ecstatic utterance or some unknown tongue. This is prayer based in Scripture. You're praying back the Word of God to Him. Christ told the Samaritan woman at the well that the day was coming when men would worship Him not in Jerusalem, but in spirit and truth. That day has come. It's here. Believers can come boldly before the throne of heaven anytime and anywhere. But to come, you must come in the power of the Holy Spirit and the Scripture. You must come with God's help. You must come in compliance with His will as it has been revealed in the Scriptures. As you come, you may come without all of your concerns at any time, day or night. If your heart is troubled, turn to God. Ask His help. If the circumstances of your life have just turned dark, speak quickly to the Father and seek His wisdom. If things are going great for your life, lift your voice in God in thanksgiving. Whatever is going on in your life, remember the sovereign Lord Almighty is there waiting to hear from you. The scriptures are God's word directed toward men. And you should hear them for they are indeed powerful. But they grow stronger in power when closely associated with God's word prayed back to God by men. This is not to say God and men are equal partners, for they are not. It's to say that because of God's word prayed by men and directed to God, it's powerful. It's powerful because it is spirit-given, spirit-guided, and divinely ordained. It has a great effect in the lives of those who continually engage in it. Paul knows that nothing can affect the attitude of the believer more than an ongoing prayer life. He tells you, devote yourselves to prayer. In Colossians 4.2, let nothing go through your life without bathing it in prayer. Cover it up with prayer. Talk to God. Ask Him to guide you and teach you. Christ told you that his people perish for a lack of knowledge. So don't fall into that trap. Do as James instructs, ask wisdom. And you will develop a new and joyful attitude toward all of life's circumstances. The third thing Paul tells you about your attitude toward God is that it must be one of giving thanks in all circumstances. He says, in everything, give thanks. That's hard for us to do sometimes. We have trouble with it. 
This idea is that you must give thanks in the midst of any and all circumstances in your life. The reason for this is that believers are not just conquerors in this life. They are more than conquerors. They are super invincible because all things are working together for the good by God's counsel. Nothing can stop God's plan for your life. Nothing. Once he has begun a good work in you, what's he going to do? He's going to complete it. He's going to see that it's done. In Ephesians 5.20, Paul tells you that as imitators of Jesus Christ, you should be giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does this mean give thanks for persecution, affliction, tribulation, anguish, and the like? Yes, it does. Perhaps it would help if you looked at what thanksgiving is really all about. So you might ask, what is thanksgiving? It is the grateful acknowledgement of benefits received. It presupposes that when you give thanks, you have seen three things. One, that you what you receive is an undeserved gift for which you did not in any way earn it. Two, that you are totally unworthy to receive that gift. Three, that those things received are great and manifold because they are so graciously given. These are the three elements that make up a proper thanksgiving. Paul mentions thanksgiving a lot throughout his writings. In Colossians, he tells you that you should be overflowing with it. This gratitude is the last link completing the circle of God's blessing that comes to you and returns to God through your unending love and spontaneous thanks and adoration. When it is correctly pursued, your thanks become a self-perpetuating attitude for it is a sign of your review of the blessings that have been given. This can only cause you to focus more and more upon the blessings and the one who gave them resulting more and more in thanksgiving. Therefore, you should be able to see that expressions of gratitude are indeed responses to favors that are not deserved. This is the very thing that causes worry to flee, complaints to disappear, and gives courage to face the future. It helps you to formulate plans that are virtuous, giving peace and abundance and bringing glory to your God. Thanks is given after the blessing has been received. Therefore, none should withhold thanks. For Jesus Christ has come into this flesh and lived the perfect life, died the atoning death, and won the resurrection victory. He did all of that. You couldn't do it. Therefore, you should rejoice. You must rejoice. Rejoice all men. Salvation is won. Redemption is guaranteed to all who hear and believe on Jesus Christ. Lift your voices and thank your God for all things. For the extra special blessing of Christ's sacrifice, for the physical and spiritual, the ordinary and the extraordinary, past, present, and future. You should also thank God for the things he has so graciously withheld, as well as for the things received. Lift your voice and give thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, because it was he who earned all these blessings for you. 
It's through Jesus Christ and his intercession before the Father that you and I receive all blessings. It's through Christ that your praises and thanks come before the Father. You offer your thanks to God the Father, the Father of your Lord Jesus Christ. It was the Father that sent Christ into the world that offered him as a sacrifice for your sins. It is to him your thanks must be offered. After after all, if you trust and believe in Jesus Christ, you are now, by adoption, a part of the Father's family. And all benefits come from him because he loves you. Therefore, you should ascribe all thanks and praise to him. You must have this attitude if you're indeed one of God's children. Thanksgiving is not something you do once a year. No, it must be a part of your very character. It must be the cornerstone of your attitude toward the God who has saved you. Paul continues, For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The will of God is clearly set forth by the means of the redemptive work and revelation of Jesus Christ. What is your responsibility? In Ephesians 5, Paul makes it clear that you must do your duty before God. He tells you that along with your duty before God, you must be submissive to one another. So you cannot have joy, your prayers will be unheard, and there will be nothing for which to give thanks until you have totally submitted your life to God. Because of the mercy offered in Jesus Christ, you are urged to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, which will be holy and pleasing before God. Yes, your salvation is free. Jesus Christ paid the price for you that you could not pay. He delivered to you who do not deserve it, salvation. This is the grounds upon which you build your joy. This is the platform from which you launch your prayers. This is the precious gift with which you begin your prayer of thanks. Do not think it has cost you nothing. You, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are in a spiritual war, and all war has a price. The price of this war is your own will. It must die, and you must live in the will of God. The old nature, the old self must die, and you must put on Christ Jesus and live in him. Live in him, for this is the will of God, the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Be committed to Jesus Christ. There's only one salvation. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You must be completed. You must be 100% completely sold out to Jesus Christ. It is Christ and Christ alone who can save. We continue to see that commitment is the foundation of Christianity. Here, Paul expresses it another way. Verses 19 through 22. Do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Do not give up. You are called into Jesus Christ. You are called to die unto self and live for Jesus Christ. You are called to make a very strong and permanent commitment to God. 
You are to commit your whole life to him. You are to commit to listening to his word and following his instructions for your life. You are to commit to the Holy Spirit and his guidance and counsel. You are to hold fast what is good. Without this strong commitment in your heart, there will be no joy, no answered prayer, and no thanksgiving. It will all be gone. The idea of commitment is strongest when it comes to prayer. Prayer is a very special privilege given to those who are committed to Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? You have a privilege standing before God. A privilege to lay before him every concern on your heart. And he will be faithful and just to fulfill every one of them according to his will. Prayer is a very special privilege. Without commitment, prayer has no meaning and certainly no power. The prayer for salvation cannot and will not be heard in heaven without a strong commitment of trust in Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior. Jesus makes it clear in John 14, 6, no one can come to the Father except through him. If you do not see yourself as a sinner lost and without hope, if you do not acknowledge your complete helplessness before God, if you do not see Jesus Christ as the only hope you have of salvation, if you are not completely committed to Jesus and to him alone, then your prayer for forgiveness and acceptance will not be heard. There will be no joy and nothing for which to give thanks. The idea of commitment is the same across the spectrum of your relationship with God. Jesus told of a man in his commitment in Luke 11, 5 through 8. And he said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. The man who came knocking at this fellow's door was committed. He was committed to, 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 to his responsibilities as a host. He went to his friend and was persistent in asking for help. He needed to do what he was responsible to do, and that's take care of the friend that had come to him. Now, the one thing I want you to do this is kind of like Jonah. One thing I want you to know, and Jonah, don't pay any attention to the whale. That's not the story. Well, the guy that's being awakened and asking for help, you have to give help, is not the story here either. It concerns the man coming and asking. It's about not about the friend who does not want to get up. The word in the Greek for persistence here means to be persistent or to be importune. Importunity means not to give up asking. This man came to his friend and was not about to go away with no answer. In prayer, you are to be committed in such a way to God's word and to his promises, such that you will not give up asking for what you know is his will for your life. Sometimes you ask and expect immediate answers. Don't we all do that? Hurry up, Lord i got to have it now. God doesn't answer on your timetable. He answers according to his own timetable. 
You are under obligation as one committed to Jesus Christ to come before God, laying your needs before him, asking his help in meeting those needs. Also, as one committed to him, you are willing to wait, to wait and continue to ask and believing that God will in his time answer your prayer. God does it. You look back over the history of your life. What do you see? You see times when you wanted something, you didn't get it until later. And you realized when you got it, that was the right time. All of these things we have talked about this morning, being joyful, continuing in prayer, giving thanks, are things that require you to have importunity. You must not ever give up on them. This is the heart of your commitment to God. You believe his word, you trust in his promises, and hold his only begotten son. And you never, never take your eyes off the love he has given you through this glorious gospel. This is the attitude of one committed to Jesus Christ. I trust you can see that it is Jesus Christ and his work on Calvary's cross that should mold your attitude toward God and that it must be an attitude of commitment, joy, prayer, and thanksgiving. As you die to self and live to Christ, that attitude deepens, making you more and more aware of the love God has shed abroad in his precious son. If you don't know this wonderful attitude of peace, let me tell you how to find it. God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into this old sinful world. He sent him to die for the sins of all who would hear his message and believe on his work. If you will hear, if you will believe, if you will commit your whole life to him, then he stands at heaven's gate to receive you. Won't you call on him right now? Call on him in your heart. Let him heal your life. Let him draw you into his father's family where you can begin living in God's joy, praying continually and offering the thanksgiving that only those committed to Christ will know and appreciate. These are the things you must understand about your God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come thanking you for giving your son to us. We're thankful that you made yourself known through creation and saved us through your son, Jesus Christ. Our hearts are filled with thanks that you chose us. How grateful we are that you called us to come before your worship that you receive our praise and thanksgiving. We thank you that you have shown us your character and the holiness of your being. Therefore, we know we can trust you and believe in you forever. Now, Lord, work in our hearts to help us go forth and tell others of these joyful thanksgivings that they might join us in praise and worship your holy name. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.